Welcome back to the Konya History Club. We're so happy you could join us today. Take a seat and take a drink and let's get this meeting started. I'm Camille and this is Ben and today we're going to be talking about Cebu. But before we get into that, we should probably introduce ourselves first and introduce what this podcast is all about. Ben? Okay, to address the elephant in the room, <laughs> we'll start off with what is the Konyo History Club? So in this club, it's all about Konyos learning about Konyos. Philippine culture and history. Uh-huh. I know our textbooks are very lacking in certain things. And some may argue that there may be some historical revisions going around. Going that's around. That's what we're trying to trying to bring bring up to light. Yeah. As aficionados, amateur aficionados of Philippine culture and history, we want to embark this journey with you, our listener, to uncover the greatest depths that this country can bring to us. <laughs> yeah, man, just pulling things out of your ass. <laughs> I, co- I commend it, but <laughs> it's a bit much. <laughs> Um, Historical revisionism is real. <laughs> but yeah, I think Ben touched on what we are. Basically, we're just a bunch of idiots talking about Philippine history and culture. And we want to know more about it. And the stuff that we research, we hope that we can share it with you guys. Or girls and anything in between. Come join us on this journey. And that's get to it oh and by the way this is the second take of the first episode because we we made a first episode but the audio wasn't great so we're re-recording it with new experiences with more um, professionalism no not really <laughs> we just got better audio, audio better audio this time. audio this time that's it. But we're still the same. Amateurs, to ease your mind, although we say we are amateurs and we don't claim to be um, professionals, we do research. We do research these topics as much as we can. We get reputable sources. We look for journals, books, and other articles by real historians. So, although we're amateurs, our sources aren't. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Alright, with that out of the way, let's begin our session. Let's go. Alright, so our first episode centers around the island of Cebu. And for our listeners who don't know where Cebu is, it's in the Visayan Islands. Okay? The Philippines <laughs> is composed of three major islands, island groups, Luzon, Visayas, and Mindanao. And Cebu is located within the central Visayas. I think when you said, for those who don't know, I think that was just targeted to me, wasn't it? Be honest. <laughs> Be honest. <laughs> Be honest. Hindi naman. Sabihin mo sa akin ito. Hindi, actually, akala ko alam mo. Yeah, I know naman. I know the basics. I know the ba- At least I know where Cebu is. Just because 
Vera is from Cebu. And everything else, I don't know where anything else is. I mean, I'm sorry to our other listeners who aren't from Cebu but are from other provinces. I'm sorry. It's not you, it's me. <laughs> I'm the I'm I'm the problem. Yes. I memorized <laughs> it I memorized it in grade school and then as soon as as soon as matapos yung mga exams, like yung mga kabisera ng, I don't know, like rice capital of the Philippines, stuff like that. Wala na, hindi ko na na. Oh, send ba, send, send. I have no idea. Yeah, just to put it out there, I don't know anything about geography. Ben does, so rest easy with, with Ben. He can correct me when I, when I say the wrong things. Anyway, exactly. go ahead. Going back, uh, we're beginning with the island of Cebu. And a little background of Cebu. It's it's a it's a big island with a rich history. It houses the oldest, one of the oldest, if not the oldest city in our country. And it's filled with lots of culture. And to begin our journey, why not talk about the first Raha? The first Raha of Cebu and how the Cebu name came to be. Alright, y'all ready? I'm ready. Let's go. So today we're talking about Sri Lumay or Sri Rahamura Lumaya, who is dubbed the first Raha and the founder of the Indianized Rahanate of Cebu. And for our fellow Konyos out there, Raha means ruler or landlord within the Malayan or Javanese language. Sometimes they can be referred to as aprons or chieftains. So our main reference for tonight is going to be from an antiquarian named Jovito Abellana from his book Aginid, Bayok sa Atong Tawarik. So Sri Lumay is a prince of Sumatra. He is half Tamil and half Malay. He was a minor prince of the Chola dynasty and around the 1400s was commissioned by the then Maharaja establish a military base around the surrounding islands but instead he chose to establish his own rajanate in the island of Cebu which was obviously not called Cebu then with his sons Sri Alho and Sri Ukob who ruled the south and the north respectively south and north of Cebu uh, some fun facts uh, the word Bisaya was coined from the Sri Vijayan Empire so, Visaya, Sri Vijaya, y'all can see the resemblance. C- connect the dots. <laughs> <laughs> connect the dots. And uh, Sri Lumay would build the city of Singhapala, which would eventually be the city of Cebu. Alright, so Sri Lumay was characterized as a loving and caring ruler. It was known that his slaves never tried escaping, but at the same time, he was ruthless and strict. But in books, he was mostly known to be a really strict ruler. He ordered everyone to learn how to read and write the alphabet from the Sri Vijayans. And he also commanded his troops to patrol the seas around the island. And this command, um, it wasn't without reason. Because the island of Cebu was, was in constant attack from the Magalos. Or it literally means destroyer of peace. So, <laughs> I mean, kayo. Yeah, we we 
mentioned this in our in our first take of this episode. Parang sobrang sama nyo naman kung maging destroyer kayo of peace. Yeah, yeah, like how how bad of a person, how bad of a group you are, how evil, <laughs> how evil can you be to be dubbed as a destroyer, destroyer of peace. peace? So yeah, those were the Magulos, mm-hmm. aka destroyer of peace, and these Magulos would consistently raid and ravage the island for gold, ceramic, slaves, and they were known to be ruthless warriors. They killed and pillaged these villages. And they they had fast balangays. So they were a difficult enemy to defeat. And they were also persistent, as I said. So even though they were defeated, they would persist. They were they were resilient in a bad way. And Sri Lumai was not happy with this. He was furious. I mean, was angry. I also wouldn't be happy if people started, started attacking my village. He ordered the scorched earth policy, or Subok, which meant burning the entire village so that whenever the Magalos attacked, they wouldn't be able to loot anything from the villages. I mean, so basically, in his in his mind, he was like, "If we can't defeat you, you're not getting anything." Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Stay away, or I'm gonna burn my town. You got it. Exactly. <laughs> Preventive measures. Yeah. He was a pioneer. <laughs> Pero, Prevention before the cure. <laughs> so this scorched earth policy was something unique of Sulumai. So unique that the entire island of Cebu was dubbed. Kang Sri Lumayang Subuk or Sri Lumay Scorched Town. And from Kang Sri Lumayang Subuk, we get Subuk later on. Cebu. Subuk? Cebu. So Cebu is a very fiery place. <laughs> Filled with passionate people like Lapu Lapu and the others. And Vera. And Vera. Vera is our producer. She's our executive producer. Yes. She thinks it makes everything possible behind the scenes. Okay. So that's that. That's the story. Ah, okay. Hindi ko pala tapos. Hindi ko lang siya include sa ano sa script ko. But what happened to Sri Luma? Like all heroes, he died. <laughs> And, yeah, oh, sige, sige. Like all heroes, he died a heroic death, defending the island against the Magalos. And his predecessors would be Rahumabon, his grandson. And that's where we'll find the hero, Lapu Lapu. And history goes on. And what's interesting in this story is that it's a dance epic. You know, the the story of Sri Lumai was told via dance. First, thoughts, thoughts regarding our man, our main man, Sri Lumai. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I think in relation to since we're uploading this after our second episode where you talked about the indigenous people. I think it's it's commendable that this kind of historical epic is still preserved especially since this was the founding of Cebu not just like calling it a city 
As in literally, they arrived in the land of Cebu. And this was the story of that. So, I think it's it's so important to talk about it and to continue to remember this is the root, the root of it all. If it wasn't for Sri Lumai, there would be no Cebu. Or, I mean, it wouldn't be Cebu as we know it now. So we have so much to think for from them. And that's why I think the least we could do is to preserve and remember his story and the story of his people, right? Yes, exactly. And uh, I, I just really wanted to note that how how interesting it is for me that um, this this story, this epic, to be more specific, was actually a dance epic, mm-hmm. and um, it the story of this of how this epic was was made strikes me because an extensive account of Sri Lumi was only recorded by two people. It's interesting and at the same time it's worrying for me that there are dance epics, not just here but around the world, of different cultures that um, in modern times they're slowly disappearing and people are not, people are losing interest over these traditions, these stories, epics, etc. And it, we, we were just lucky that Sir Abeliana took the time to record and write the stories of his ancestors mm-hmm. before they were gone. Yeah, and, and I think it's part of our, our duty as the future generations to preserve these stories because our ancestors have already done their part in creating the epic and we now have the duty to preserve it for future generations to come. I don't know how we could help in doing that, but hopefully talking about it more, discussing it more in classrooms, um, in, in including, including these stories in history classes would help in preserving those stories. Um, I remember because when we were younger, or at least in, in, in the school that I attended, um, not that they, not that it was wrong for them to do so, but all we used to talk about during those history classes were times of colonization, like by the Spaniards, the Japanese, and the Americans, and we we barely talk about our very very first ancestors, like for example Sri Lumai. We we don't talk about how his people or people like him first came to the country. When we think of history, our first thought is Spanish colonization, which I think is very Eurocentric. I remember reading this article before. There's some kind of view that something doesn't exist until the Spaniards or the Europeans discovered it. But that's not true. I mean, this account shows that people like, for example, Sri Lumai have been around way, way before um, way before we were ever colonized by the Spaniards. I think that's a failing of future generations if we don't highlight the central part that our ancestors played in terms of creating our country as we know it today. Exactly. We have so many languages in the Philippines. 
and it's not just languages it's rating systems i mean i understand uh, we can't study all of those languages or histories of those languages during high school pero it would be nice to at least acknowledge that we have that depth of history and i think that's what we're missing out on in, in terms of studies at least in my experience um, our textbooks should be Reformatted. Yeah. Uh, uh, revised, not reformatted. Because <laughs> I remember. Include more. I remember we talked about Asian Asian history. Parang mas marami pa akong alam about Chinese history than our own ancestors, like mga yung mga datu. Like I would be more interested about that than knowing about the dynast Chinese dynasties. Like I mean, yeah. That's I get true, it, though. But. I would rather learn about our own history. We got better books, though. Yeah, I mean they have. Yeah, they, I think we mentioned this before. We don't have a lot of documentation over ancestors because the way they share their history is orally, right? That's true, and I think uh, I touched upon this, or we touched upon this the first time that even though they were at some point recorded they didn't really have sustainable materials you know? mm-hmm. I see some scriptures written on leaves and of course they wouldn't survive centuries if they if they weren't preserved properly so i guess you could say that some some texts they may have disappeared forever not only that colonization also contributed to our loss of materials because our colonizers burned everything that could have been kept for posterity because they were afraid that if we were able to keep a sense of identity it'd be harder to colonize the Philippines. That's true. So they opted If you could recall your Philippine history, our ever so thoughtful Spaniards mm-hmm. or Spanish colonizers tried to eradicate our Philippine history. They burned Philippine books, or our equivalent of books, and they tried to convert our Babaylands, if not kill them, to propagate this Christian European culture. And our Babaylands are usually the the historians of each community, so they were they were always a pivotal piece in Philippine society. They were not just healers, but they were also leaders and historians who hold important pieces of history and culture. Yeah, that's why they were the first ones that the Spaniards targeted in subduing because they knew that if they were able to get the Babaylands, the stature of Babaylands in the community would urge other members of the communities to join them and after waves of colonization our need for historical documentation was left to the wayside i think that's why it's so interesting for me to start this podcast with you is because there's so much i don't know about our culture and about our history and whatever we learn in in our research i hope to share with other people who like me didn't have a lot of opportunities to learn about these things. I don't know. I think that's it for me. Like, I, I guess I'm just happy to be doing this because I always listen to historical podcasts and most of what I could find were 
geared toward Western history. And I think our, our history and our culture is just as colorful, just as interesting. And I hope that we can we can show that in our podcast. Exactly. And we we want to explore more. Our country is so much more than what our books says it to be. I think we could we could keep this podcast going for the rest of our lives and we still wouldn't be able to cover the half of it. Alright, for our listeners who are well-versed in our history and culture, maybe you're a history major, a real history buff yeah. with the right resources, or maybe you're a natural academic. Yeah. And we appreciate discussion. We appreciate you correcting us. Because yeah, that is the point of this podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to learn more. We want to share mm-hmm. about our history and culture. And we want lively discussion. Yeah, so shoot us an email at conyohistoryclub at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, slide into our DMs at conyohistoryclub on Twitter. Okay, so tonight I will be talking about Pantaleon Villegas, also known as the man, the myth, the legend, Leon Quilet. So. Leon Quilet was a revolutionary leader in Cebu during the Philippine Revolution against Spain. But before he joined the Katipunan, he first worked some random jobs. He worked in a botica, but he didn't stay long there. He also transferred to a bakery and later moved on to a circus, which, as luck would have it, happened to be owned by a Katipanero. And it was there that he was recruited into the secret council of the Katipunan and his heroic journey began. Kilat was known for his bravery and daring, but more than anything else, he was most well known because of his anting antings. During the revolution in Cebu, the odds were stacked against the Katipunan. Some of their leaders were arrested and they didn't have the proper equipment and they were going up against the Spanish troops who, as we now know, were more organized and better equipped. So what plan did the Katipunan employ to rally its people? They created the myth of Leon Quilet. So when I say the myth and the legend of Leon Quilet, I actually mean that they made a legend about him. So according to stories about the people around him, Leon Quilet allegedly had the ability to appear in places from out of nowhere and disappear using his handkerchief like a magic carpet. And it was because of those powers that he got the name Leon Quilet, Leon to represent his bravery and ferocity, and Quilet which represented his lightning fast powers, where he would be fighting the Spanish in Cebu one day and the Negros the next. Andres Abeliana recalled 30 years after the revolution that he and Leon Quilet would advance towards his enemies even as bullets flew around him. And even though it rained bullets, Quilet was rarely hit and if he was, he would just dust himself off as if he wasn't even hurt. Some people might ask, how did creating the legend of Leon Quilet help? Well, Quilet allegedly shared his ability with fellow Katiponeros to shield them in battle. 
and whether or not it was effective didn't seem to bother them, and they wholeheartedly believed that they would become invulnerable to bullets like their leader. And that strong belief was essential in fighting against an overpowering force, emboldening the Katipunan troops to fearlessly charge against the Spanish colonizers, which had the upper hand. The Katipunan had various kinds of anting-antings they used to aid in their battles. So while I was researching for this story, I, um, I, saw, I saw some research that it was also kind of an occult membership. They had anting-antings. Like for example, they had anting-antings which range, ranged from clothing used to shield the soldiers from injuries to pieces of paper or cloth that had certain words inscribed in the center which they would place in their mouths believing that it would remove feelings of hunger or thirst during a long fight or journey. And Leon Quilet was among those that had the task of writing the inscriptions for such items and all those who were given these objects were given certain warnings like for example not to carry money or other metal objects aside from their weapons and not to allow themselves to be touched by women or else the effectivity of the anting-anting would be jeopardized. It's very interesting. The rebellion led by Kilat was initially intended to happen on Easter Sunday, but he was forced to change his plans when the Spaniards caught wind of the planned revolt. So instead, he opted to begin in Cebu on Palm Sunday, which was April 3, 1898 which has since been dubbed Tres de Abril. They decided to stay in Cebu after, after that rebellion, and they entered the city of Kabkab, which is now modern-day Karkar. The residents of Kabkab already had mixed feelings about accepting Leon Quilet and his men, because they were wary of possible retaliation from the Spaniards if they were to help him. In fact, according to Vicente Alcoseba, who was with a group of Kilat at the time, the plan to kill the latter was hatched at a confessional by Father Francisco Blanco, who suggested to Capitan Florencio Noel that the only way Cabcab could avoid the retaliation of the Spaniards was to kill Kilat. So, when Kilat arrived in Cabcab, although he was accorded hospitality, those who plotted to kill him were constantly talking in whispers. When evening came, Apolinario Alquitas, a recruit of the Katipunan in Kabkab, loudly said, Brothers, I would like to announce that tonight I am going to slaughter a horse. Not knowing the gruesome future, Alcoseba did not understand what Alquitas meant. As the night wore on, Kilat retired to rest for the night. Before he did so though, the son of the house's owner, Vicente, briefly talked to Kilat of the latter's battles, fascinated by his travels and exploits. He was the last person to talk to Kilat alive. After a while, Vicente also retired to rest, only to be woken a few hours later after hearing loud noises coming from Kilat's room. Vicente rushed out of his room, only to be met by an excited Florencio Noel coming up the stairs, carrying a huge crucifix, and asking if anything had happened yet. Then Noel shouted, Viva España! Viva España! 
and several others outside the house responded. Still confused, Vicente rushed to Kilat's room with their maid, and both were met with a gruesome scene. Kilat's limp body was being pinned down by eight men, some of whom took turns stabbing the lifeless body of Leon Kilat. In addition to the numerous stab wounds, Kilat's head was also bashed in by his own gun. Vicente could not believe what he was seeing and asked, Buhi pa ba? Is he still alive? Someone replied to him, Patay na in tawon. He is dead. Vicente had no words left and stepped backward in shock, leaning against the wall. As if the trauma that Kilat's body had endured was not enough, on the way out of the house, Kilat's killers put down his body and again each took turns stabbing the body and breaking his limbs, wanting to see if he really was invulnerable. After the gruesome murder, Leon Kilat's body was brought to the town center and was displayed for an entire day. That day was April 8th, which was the Good Friday, a day for remembering the passion and death of Christ. Just as one of the onlookers exclaimed, as they stood in awe at the body of Leon Kilat displayed in the town center. Today, Holy Friday, our Lord will not be buried alone. To commemorate his sacrifices for the revolution, a monument was made for Leon Kilat, depicting him with a sword in hand, riding his legendary horse, Puti, which stands in the very same city where he was murdered in, Karkar, Cebu. Damn! <laughs> oh man, what a man, yeah. what a guy, what a legend Leon Kilat was. I mean, Although I do have some, I know, um, some thoughts, and uh, some things to note. I like when, uh, who was that guy who mentioned kill a horse, to I will kill a, kill a horse. See, Alquitas. And Alquitas. He's the, I like how Alquitas, not really I like, but I'd like to... Uh, <laughs> Point out how Alquitas mentioned, I'd like to kill a horse tonight, or I will kill a horse tonight. Mm -hmm. Because there was a play, play in words there, you know, um, meaning that um, it was a, of course, it was like a sign to everyone else who was in on the, mm -hmm. on the mission, on the plan. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it just meant that I don't think they have anything bad against Kilat. You know, he was a sacrifice, like, kill a horse, meaning like a sacrifice. Mm. Mm, I didn't and really think about it that way. That Kilat's death was a necessary thing to do in order to assure their survival. So that was the first thing that I wanted, that I noted. And you know, the Filipinos are very, very romantic in their words. And the next thing, actually the occult, uh, the occult thing that you mentioned in the Katipuna, which really struck me and makes me wonder if the occult in the Katipunan, uh, within the ranks of the Katipunan, began from Kilat himself, or was it a Filipino thing? And I'm pretty sure it's a Filipino thing, but still, I was thinking if, the, if there was a different, uh, a different source or origin of how uh, the Katipunan was more occult-like. Yeah, I, I actually want to explore that, you know, the, the inner workings of the Khadikunan, uh, the system and their perspectives, the philosophies of 
key members and, we, and of course the entire organization itself like what were the prevailing perspectives uh, within its members and it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting thing to to note that they had this reliance in these anting antings mm -hmm. uh just to clarify the the death of leon kila doesn't have uh for from what i know it doesn't have any connection to the infighting but it was more of the people of Karakar were scared of retaliation. Although, of course, I'm not condoning the gruesome murder of Leon Kilat. It's a, it's, fear is an understandable human emotion. But at the same time, it's something that you have to stand up against, right? Like, no matter how scared you are. But we don't know their circumstances. We don't know what it was really that pushed them to make the decision that they made but what i can say is sobrang gruesome nung ginawa nila even if even if you could even if you could rationalize it and say oh we did it to save our lives or to save our families but grabe i mean he was stabbed multiple times in this Arms and legs were broken, and his head was bashed in. Parang, I, I yeah, think that's how effective. That's yeah. how effective the legend was. Yeah. That even within their ranks, yeah. even within their members, they truly believe that Leon Kilat was you know, superhuman. Yeah, exactly. I think that's how effective the the stories that they made of Leon Kilat was, because they had to go to such lengths to make sure that he wasn't coming back. I like this this different take, weaponizing myths and legends and um, and again uh, I talked about uh, Sri Lumai, the legend of Sri Lumai, which is supposed to you know, it's, it's supposed to just give a um, an exposition on how how Cebu was made, it may or may not be true, given its myth or epic designation. Mm -hmm. But uh, the purpose of the purpose of this epic is really to preserve and to inform the people that this was what happened, and this is our history. Mm -hmm. In contrast to uh, in contrast to that, this legend or myth of Leon Kilat was deliberately made to fool people into thinking that someone someone had this mystical power I think it wasn't beyond like, human comprehension it wasn't aimed at fooling the soldiers more of to give them a kind of hope i like your term of weaponizing myth because that that was what they did it wasn't i mean this is just pure conjecture of course but i mean Maybe to some to some degree, people people knew it wasn't true. Like the powers weren't true, but people needed that. People needed something to to rally behind. If you're fighting a battle that you already think is lost, your spirit isn't in the fight. Parang you already threw in the towel before the match even began. But if you're with someone who claims to have all these powers. There's still some hope. 
and ha having that kind of hope is a weapon in itself because it emboldens people to pick up their boilers, to pick up their guns and charge against a destiny that they already knew was leading to, to their deaths. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing how they um, turned this narrative into, you know, at first it was made to, uh, it was made to fool. I, I feel like it's it, it's uh, it's initial initial intention was to fool the Spaniards mm -hmm. into thinking that we had this this weapon uh, this special weapon that that they didn't have because at that time we were severely undermanned you know we, we didn't have the necessary weapons you know partly um, this uh, this myth that uh, the Catapuna created gave us this you know, imaginary advantage against them mm -hmm. and it not only gave us this sort of advantage it also gave us you know hope it had a dual purpose mm -hmm. you know? and as for as for your other you know, your other insight i think it's it's very interesting that you highlighted the occult of the katipunan because i've always felt like there was kind of an occult aspect to the Katipunan just because their enlistment process was uh, parang scary siya talaga. Parang do you remember like did you guys discuss it before in high school? Um I'm not sure if I recall correctly but okay. I, although I do I think parang may sandugo part mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically what they would do was or at least I, I don't know what part of this is like gossip and what is real but if it is I mean it's pretty interesting from what I remember what they would do was basically they would bring you in a very dark place maybe like a cave or something and you would go through a bunch of like trials for courage stuff like that and they would put a bag over your head and uh, imagine there's this knife pointing up like how nila over a table can you imagine it like the mm -hmm. point the point is going up they would put your hand over over the blade let you feel that the blade was there and then they would remove it and they would say baba or like put your hand down and you would have mm -hmm. to still thinking that the blade like was a, there. like a test of courage yeah like a test of courage is there anything yeah. else you want to say <laughs> well i know you know if you guys, you know, yeah. if you have any ideas, any insight among our among our stories, feel free to email us. You know, in our club, we encourage discussion and even arguments. You know, as long as they're civil mm -hmm. and with the intention of you know, teaching and learning. And with that, we end our meeting. Thank you for joining us this week and learning more about Philippine culture and history. Let us hear from you and tell us how we can do better. We hope you come back next week for another meeting where we can embark on another journey towards the unknown. Again, I'm Camille and that's Ben and this has been the Konya History Club. Bye-bye. Thank you.